This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Aspie released the 21st edition of its annual Cost of Defence budget brief, which is Australia's most comprehensive analysis of defence spending. Michael Shoebridge speaks to the report's lead author, Dr Marcus Hellier, about the biggest areas of spending for defence and challenges for the department, as well as the difficult choices the new government faces given issues such as supply chain disruptions, inflation, and the conflict in Ukraine. Well, Dr. Marcus Hellyer, yet another cost of defence product, but this time with very, very different strategic circumstances that Australia finds itself in, and a very timely analysis because there's a brand new government that's already clearly an activist government, and a Prime Minister who is already becoming a National Security Prime Minister in the person of Anthony Albanese. So one of the headlines, I thought, in your analysis is about what room the new government is going to have to make its own decisions on defence. You talk about the cash flow and the mega projects. Mm. Well, thank you, Michael. So I'll just go back to what you said about the new government there. They are inheriting some pretty significant security issues. But it is quite interesting that the leadership of the Labor Party, you have a a Prime Minister who's very interested in those issues, a Deputy Prime Minister who's the Defence Minister, and a leader in the Senate who is the Foreign Minister. So, you know, international issues and security issues are sort of core to this new government, Mm. which is, I think, quite interesting for a a Labor government. Mm. But as you say, they are facing some quite big issues you know the, the fundamental one is the defense budget you know before you can decide what you want to spend it on you've got to have that money there and i think first things first credit to the previous government which did increase the defense budget significantly we've now had 10 years of real increases the previous government set out what it was going to deliver in the 2016 white paper in terms of dollars and they did deliver that so and i think you make the point in your report that That stability and confidence in that growing long-term funding is a real enabler of capability increase and good planning and implementation. Now, whether or not those two features are there, good planning and good implementation, there's a platform because of the stable growing funding. That's exactly right. And as somebody who has been involved in managing defences investment program. Huge changes from year to year are very, very difficult to manage and they have an impact on capability and they have an impact on industry. So, you know, consistent funding, whatever it is, you know, set that plan and stick to it. And that certainty is an important thing. But, you know, that said, you know, both of us have written a lot about what that money is being spent on and we both have concerns on some of the things that's being spent on. So as the new government comes in, it's going to have to address the fundamental question of of how much money should the defence budget be and then have a really good think about what it's being spent on. So the first thing about how much money, as we've both talked about, that funding line from the previous government, even though it had you know, real spending increases built into it. That funding line was essentially determined in 2015 as part of the development of the 2016 white paper. And so the world has changed a the lot. The world has since fundamentally that time. changed, as we like to say. In the two years it took us to write the 2016 white paper, China essentially went out and de facto annexed the South China Sea. You know, so we are in a very different world, and of course we can both list lots of quite worrying things that have happened since then. Well, let me just. 
mentioned too. War has returned to the world in a big way in the form of Putin's war in Ukraine. So post-war Europe is not a word we can use anymore. The strategic partnership between Russia and China is an obvious working partnership in the middle of this war. And China is now posing a direct security threat to Australia in a way that wasn't in contemplation back in 2016 with things like the Solomons-Beijing Security Pact. So there are radical, dangerous, damaging changes in our security environment, but the budget plan was made before that. That's exactly right. So if, if the answer back in 2015 was, you know, a budget growing to 2.1 or 2.2% of GDP was the right amount, I think we have to reconsider whether that is the right amount. But of course, a new government is facing all kinds of other pressures. So, you know, we have rapidly rising cost of living pressures on the Australian people. The government has made commitments to NDIS. You know, so there's a lot of other things for and the government. care to, and health. Other, a lot of other things for them to spend money on. And, you know, some people, there's a bit of talk out there that, well, 2%, let's, let's you know, keep the defence budget at 2%. I think it's important to sort of just briefly say, what does that mean? Mm. So the funding profile that the previous government set out does rise considerably past 2%, up to, you know, 2.2%, maybe a little bit more. Of course, it depends on how much GDP GDP, grows. So if we move back to 2.2% exactly, that's a a funding cut probably in the order of 3 to $4 billion dollars a year in the near term. Well, and more if the economy deteriorates because of a broader international recession. Correct. If you tie your defence budget to GDP and GDP goes down, your defence budget Uh, But that's why the 2016 funding line that went out till the end of this decade was not tied to GDP. So if we go back to 2%, that 3 to $4 billion cut is the equivalent of parking your top 10 capabilities. You know, that's the sustainment budget of the top 10 capabilities. So you park your frigates, your destroyers, your submarines, Joint Strike Fighter, Super Hornet, and all of your munitions for the Army and Navy. That's indicatively what we're talking about. Mm. So, Well, and Defence has parked a capability before. Remember, for funding pressure reasons, Defence parked its Minehunter ships. And trying to then get them back into service is really difficult mm-hmm. and prohibitively expensive. So, so, yeah, imagine doing that for your top 10 capability. So I don't think going back to 2% is really viable at the moment mm. if you want to have something resembling the current level of capability. The other impact is that the government's going to have to address, I think, soon is inflation. So inflation is at you know levels far beyond sort of the, the kind of nice 2 to 2.5% that was built into our planning assumptions when that funding line Mm -hmm. was developed in 2015 or 2016. And it's even running more at a higher rate than there was even in the budget that was released back in in March. So a lot of assumptions have been completely overturned. Just in the the short term, Defence has probably lost about a billion and a half dollars What's the short term? Just this year. Just this year. So in real purchasing power, with the change to inflationary expectations, there's already a net reduction in the current defence budget's spending power of about $1.5 billion. Yep, yep. 
And if we if inflation stays at five percent, say for the next four or five years, that annual difference starts to approach Ooh. five, six, seven billion dollars a year. And if it continues over the whole decade, then we're talking, you know, ten billion dollars a year. So these more. kinds of decisions have to be in the middle of the total budget and priority decision making of the new government. Um, yeah. So, so they've, 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 they've suggested they'll do a budget in October. There's some big questions you know, mm. that they're going to have to consider. Well, and then that brings us to, okay, well, whatever the funding envelope of the defence budget is, what is the plan? What is the money being spent on? And this is another thing where we are really a prisoner of the past. The, the broad capability plan is the same one from the 2009 white paper, with the difference being instead of the force turning up by 2030, the force turns up by 2040 and later. And the other problem is the major spend is on the mega projects which aren't delivering over this dangerous decade. And there's a real choice here for the government to get back some flexibility and deliver some real military power this decade. But there's really only one mega project left, which if they decide that early this year, they will remove the last discretionary spend that they have. And I'm talking about Land 400. Yes. So, look, I, I don't want to start World War Three over tanks and armour. You know, Somebody has to, because this is the last big spending you know, commitment that will tie up the funds that the new government well, has to do some things differently. Yes. So... I think that the government does need to, you know, have a hard conversation with defence about what it sees. The total spend on recapitalising army's armour is about thirty to forty billion dollars. The, the big chunk that hasn't been decided yet is phase three, so the infantry fighting vehicles, which has a, a budget of eighteen to twenty-seven billion dollars. So, you know, and as you say, that is probably the last flexible sort of pot of cash that is not yet committed. So we're not going to stop developing SSNs, we're not going to stop developing the hunter. You know, if you want a big pot of money to do something differently with, that's it. So Ooh. you know now the, there go- will the be government the government can make that decision and go down that path but it's it really does tie its hands so it needs Mm. to make sure that that capability fits in with how it sees the adf operating Mm. well i would expect that the army will push the government for an early decision i think that would be a mistake unless the government really understands how this acquisition fits into our strategy in the region Uh, where land force is needed in volume and scale, and more importantly, what Defence and the Army's plans are to deploy, sustain and support these systems and and the broader force that it needs. Because to me, um, there isn't the scale of force structure or sustainment systems or simple maritime transport to make this a useful capability. You know, I'll just say one statistic... Uh, 21 of these heavy armoured vehicles can fit on one of the two large amphibious ships that we have. And we will have over 700 heavy armoured vehicles between the Abrams tanks, the Boxer Combat Reconnaissance Vehicle, which is unprotected from active defence systems, and this new mega project of up to 450 vehicles. So I think some simple questions about what the rest of the force structure is and how much of it simply isn't there 
need to be asked before this mega project is committed to? Well, I think you, you've laid out the issues there, Michael. I guess the question is, well, if what should you be spending that money on? So, you know, it's, people have said many times is, you know, you can spend every dollar only once. So every time you spend a dollar, there's an opportunity cost there. What are you not spending it on? So the question is, if you took that 18 to $27 billion, what are the other things that you could be spending it on instead? So, you know, and that gets to the, the issue, or some of those other issues of what can we do more quickly and how can we acquire the kinds of capabilities that I think were set out quite accurately in the Defence Strategic Update of 2020? So those long-range strike capabilities that in, can impose cost on a potential great power adversary mm. at greater range. The Army could have a role there? The Army could have a role there, and I think it's really interesting that you know we've, we focus a lot on armour, but actually a lot of the other building blocks of a much more disaggregated, if you can use the term mosaic concept... Like the US Marine Corps. Like the US Marine Corps, and our Army really doesn't like being compared to a Marine Corps. It sees itself as an Army. But a lot of those components of a much more agile, deployable, flexible concept that the US Marine Corps are acquiring, such as long-range missile land-based anti-ship missiles, smaller amphibious vessels, flexible airlift assets that you can deploy those components very quickly. We're also getting them as well. So Ooh. it's sort of, you know, yes, I'm sceptical of the value of that huge investment in armour, but other interesting stuff is going on. And also all of our services are getting a lot more active around the smart and the many. So those Ooh. smaller, attritable, autonomous systems that we can build at scale and replace quickly. So th there is goodness going on there as well. But I do think that the big capability challenge we're facing is around maritime warfighting capability. So, you know, we've written about this before, that both of Navy's warfighting fleets, its surface combat fleet and its submarine fleet, are at huge risk, I think. They are starting very long transitions where we are at risk of the current capabilities ageing out before the new capabilities come in. So it's, it's the in. Anzacs staying capable until the delayed Hunter frigates turn up. Uh, that's a rubber band that's stretching and stretching as the Hunter frigate program stays troubled. And then it's obviously the Collins being stretched like another rubber band until the AUKUS nuclear submarines turn up and all this discussion about bridging capabilities. Mm. Exactly. And, and I think the submarine capability is... My view is we already have a capability gap in the submarine space. So Navy has said, oh, don't worry, there won't be a, a capability gap. What they're really saying is... They're confident they can continue to provide two deployable Collins submarines throughout this very long transition mm. well into the 2040s to the, new, to now, the nuclear I, submarines. I, yeah. I think there is no way that two Collins submarines meets our submarine capability requirements. Back in 2009, the Rudd government said we need more submarine capability, we need to grow to 12. We are not actually getting any more capability until the late 2030s, 
best case. Mm. That's a 30-year period. I think you're right. All this focus on two submarines. Uh, you need six to get two, is the simple Correct. mathematics. But let's, that's a separate podcast to get deeper on the submarines. Um, another issue you pointed out in your analysis is, so let's say all these investment plans, these slow mega projects that don't actually provide any improvement for Australia's security in a dangerous world until the mid-2030s, let's say they all just proceed and stay on track. There's a real problem in getting the number of people into the military that they require because that's 18,500 people over the next 18 years and an average of 1,000 a year, front-end loaded. But what's the truth of ADF recruitment and the net rate of growth that has been achieved recently? Right, so when you go through the people numbers since the white paper, and, and we have to remember, defence has essentially been in a environment of unconstrained people resources. You mm. know, whatever money it needed to throw at the people problem, it had. Despite that, it's averaged about net growth of 300 people a year over the in last the six ADF, to seven. In the ADF, across the three services. Across the three services in the ADF. So, And that has not been through lack of trying. You know, they have sort of thrown everything. And at, conditions at this issue. are good. Uh, the, the package of, you know, the free health care, the housing, very favourable loan rates, and the pay. Of course, that's because of the kind of service we demand of, of people joining the military. But the overall package is an attractive one. Well, it doesn't appear to be attractive enough. Mm. <laughs> you know, and that's the problem. So if you need to grow at over 1,000 a year and you're only achieving 300 a year, mm. it, it does sort of make you wonder, is that future force structure viable? Well, just very simply, if you can't get the 1,000 people a year that you need to crew and sustain these new weapons like the Hunter-class frigates and the nuclear submarines and all of these armoured vehicles then why should you buy the weapon systems? It, it does make you think, is there a need to rethink the plans about how many humans and how many systems can be operated without humans or with less humans? Look, I think that's right. And, you know, I know people go, oh, well, if we can you know, get lots of autonomous systems, we'll need less people. I mean, I think in the short to medium term, that's not proving to be mm. the case. You no. still need people to operate those mm. systems. So there's, it's not like we can suddenly invent an ADF4 structure that doesn't need people. But I think the path we're going down probably could lead us to a place where we, we have these amazing new capabilities, noting that it's still a long time till we get them and we won't have the people to operate them. Yep. So you either fix the people pipeline and get more people into the ADF or you have to change the plan because it's pointless. And the, the people problem I don't think is, is terrible. I mean, the, the, pro, the challenge is not that defence can't recruit people. The challenge is people are leaving at roughly the same rate mm. as recruiting them. So it has. And, a, and there are opportunities in the broader economy. Now, I know we're running out of time. So I just wanted to get back to a couple of things around integrity and transparency and public trust and just an obvious big lesson out of Ukraine and what taxpayer and government expectations there might be on defence. So my view, reading your work and thinking about the broader economic and strategic environment, is it's now unacceptable for defence to only increase Australia's military power sometime in the 2030s. It's a much more urgent task. That's what the government will require of defence, and taxpayers will expect that because you cannot be spending $48.6 billion this next financial year going to $70 billion by 2030 with no observable increase to our military power in this dangerous decade. 
So there'll be enormous pressure there. And the Ukrainians have shown in eight years you can radically increase your military power. The same military that was defeated comprehensively by the Russians in 2014 has been performing uh, and inflicting major consistent losses on the Russians. So that time is time to make rapid gains. What are your thoughts on that? And then how does that link to the transparency and trust in government agenda we see so obviously in the new parliament? Yes, well, I'd, I'd agree. I think if there's any lessons out of Ukraine, that one of the first ones is it is possible to transform your military in you know, relatively short time periods. You know, you don't, you don't need 20 to 30 years to do it. I think if the Ukrainians looked at our four-structure plan and said, hang on, you're, you're spending tens of billions of dollars on projects that don't deliver for another 15 or 20 years, you guys are crazy, you know, and you'd probably have to agree with them on that. Now, I, I would slightly disagree with you in saying we're not getting any capability until the end of the 2030s, that we are getting capability. And I think it's those areas where that we really should be focusing on. So those areas are where we can move fast, where Australian industry can contribute because they have the skills. But a lot of that stuff is is operating a sort of bit below the radar because of this continuing focus on the mega projects. And I think that's an area where there's certainly an opportunity for a better conversation with the people. But but overall, I agree, defence has to do a much better job at sharing information with the Australian people. And the government needs to have, I think, a much better conversation with the Australian people. This this idea of, well, trust us because this stuff, well, it's complicated or it's classified or it's commercial in confidence and we really can't share that with you, I, you know, that isn't just that, doesn't cut isn't it that in one a of the reasons, Isn't that one of the reasons the French submarine program died such a quiet death? You know, there was outrage from President Macron, understandably, but inside Australia, that program had no friends. And that's because there was a complete lack of transparency from all of the senior defence officials, including the program manager, in a sustained way. And in fact, a very confrontational approach taken to the parliament. To me, that just won't work with the new parliamentary balance we see. Yeah, and I think we saw, you know, with the last government, a sort of nadir of relations, not just with the public, with the parliament, you know. So a number of reports were put out by parliamentary committees that, you know, sort of catalogued this list of failure to disclose information. And I think we, the new government with a transparency agenda has an opportunity to reset that kind of conversation. You know, when, when you look at the SSN program. It's a further six election cycles before we get the first boat. You know, so you, it's a long journey. The government has to bring the Australian people along. Well, that, that program needs friends, stakeholders and supporters, and it will only get them by transparency and disclosure. And I look at the American level of disclosure out of the Pentagon. It is mind-numbingly detailed compared to the lack of disclosure in our system. Well, I've, and I've, they have... Uh, even more exquisite classified capabilities than we do. So if it's possible for them, it is definitely possible for I, us. I do think it's, it's quite ironic that if you want to try and work out what's going on in Australian defence programs, the first place you go to look for information is in US budget documentation. Mm, so we'll probably see if the government and the officials are actually interested in a more transparent approach in forthcoming Senate estimates hearings and perhaps in parliamentary statements to the parliament on these defence issues. It has to start from the top down. 
So it's a time of decision and delivery and it's a time to really think where is the flexibility that the new government has to make a difference to our security this decade, in fact, this term of government. Thanks so much, Marcus. It's, it's a fantastic read as usual. And we didn't even get into another fascinating bit. I just really encourage people to read, which is the chapter that uh, Dr Ben Stevens worked on about the cost of war. We've talked all about the cost of defence, but you might just give a couple of closing remarks on the cost of war and, and what's set out in that chapter. Well, yeah, so our research intern, Ben Stevens, has done a great chapter looking at the sort of... the rip, following the ripples of the cost of war out from Ukraine, which, you know, are quite enormous, really. So it's not just the massive physical destruction and loss of life in Ukraine, but the impact on, say, global commodity prices is creating food insecurity around the world, which it could lead to second and third order effects of political instability. But of course, average Australians are feeling the effects here because our gas and coal markets are tied into global markets. Mm. So just as everybody around the world is paying more money for, for gas... Australian consumers are paying more money for gas. In fact, here. we're paying paying whatever price is on the global market for gas we have here at home, except for those lucky West Australians. Yeah, so, so ironically, brand new government here in Australia, they've already inherited a political problem caused by Vladimir Putin on the other side of the world. Mm. Yeah. So, but I, I think it's a really big reminder of why deterring conflict is so important because we can talk about $48.6 billion spent this next financial year here in Australia on defence, but the reconstruction cost, the loose estimate uh, from President Zelensky in Ukraine, whose people are fighting on our behalf right now, is that the cost of reconstruction is at least $600 billion. And it's probably increasing by $10 billion a day while mm. Russian shelling goes on. Yeah. Yeah, so if we think the cost of defence is a lot, the cost of war is many, many times more. Well, thank you, Marcus. I'd encourage everyone that's found anything interesting in this conversation to have a look at the report and just take a bit of time to read it and think about its analysis. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Michael. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. To read the Cost of Defence report, head on over to aspie.org.au. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.